Well, as I said at the beginning of our service, we're in this series called Life in Babylon, in which we're looking at that story of Daniel. And the reason why we're doing this is because Daniel's story teaches us what it means to be a redemptive influence in a society and a culture that is increasingly different from our, uh, from our that has different values than our own. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3 a little bit and trying to understand how that story relates to our calling in the world. But uh, we want to begin by going before God in prayer. And so I invite you to please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word, that you have gathered us here now that we might hear it, that we might understand it, that you might reveal your heart to us, but as well reveal your purpose for our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, open hearts and minds to understand and receive the message that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, it's easy to take a look at some of the stories in the book of Daniel and to say, you know, there's really not a whole lot here that I can relate to. And certainly Daniel chapter 3 is one of those stories. Because in this story, we have this tyrant, this king of Babylon. You have King Nebuchadnezzar. And what he has done is he has set up an idol. And And this giant statue, this statue of gold. And he has basically required everyone in his kingdom to bow down and to worship it. And we look at that story and we say, you know, I have no idea how that's going to relate to my life. Because quite honestly, it's not like I drive down the street and I see big golden images up there that if I don't worship them, I get thrown into a fire. I mean, that's just not in our daily experience. We look at that and we say, what could this story that's written, you know, way back in like the 8th century BC, what does this have to do with me? How could this possibly help me understand how to live in the world today? I mean, it's so far removed from our cultural experience. I mean, the closest we get nowadays is when we look at like a totalitarian regime, right? Where you have some of their leaders setting up statues and requiring that people salute them or whatever they need to do in order to be safe. But here in America today, does this really relate? Does Daniel chapter 3 have anything to say? But I think as we take a look at Daniel chapter 3, that while some of the details on the surface may seem strange and foreign to us, what we're going to realize as we take a closer look is that the, the, the key lessons are very, very relatable. In fact, they're issues that we deal with on a daily basis. And so to help us kind of understand that, I want to put Daniel chapter 3 in its proper context for a moment. You guys remember back to our first week, um, we started by noting that, that Daniel takes place at a time in which Daniel's country, the country of Judah, has been invaded by the nation of Babylon. The Babylonians have come, they invaded Judah, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and they've carried people off into slavery and into exile. Daniel and his three friends, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are all carried off as part of the nobility, and they are now forced to work for King Nebuchadnezzar as members of his court. And that's kind of where we were last week as we, we, we looked at the beginning of that story. But before we get to Daniel chapter 3, there's also Daniel chapter 2. And it's important to note what happened in that text. In Daniel chapter 2, we are first introduced to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Up to this point, he's been a background character. But in Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream. 
And it's a dream that so disturbs him that he calls together all of his wise men, all of his court magicians, and he says, I've had this terrible dream, and I want you guys, my magicians, to tell me what I dreamed and to tell me what it means. And he goes to person after person, and none of them are able to, one, tell the king what he dreamed, but two, tell him what it was all about until he finally gets to Daniel. And Daniel says, well, let me have a day to pray. Let me go before my God and ask him. And if the Lord wills to reveal to me your dream, I will come and tell you its meaning. So Daniel goes away, he prays, and God actually reveals it to him. And he comes to the king, and this is what he tells him. He says, in your dream, you saw a statue. And its head was made of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar is floored that Daniel is actually able to tell him what the dream is, but then Daniel says, this is what the dream means, O king. Your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, is the golden head. And after you will come another nation— And after that nation, another nation. And after that nation, another nation. And yet another nation. They will all succeed your kingdom. But there will be a stone which no man has has cut, which will destroy all these kingdoms, and it will become a mountain that fills the whole earth. That stone, that mountain, is the kingdom of God. Only God's kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. All the kingdoms of the earth must bow down in worship before him. You see, Daniel has, was basically given the gift of, of insight into this dream because God had a message for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to understand that, yes, I have used you for my purposes, but your kingdom is not from everlasting to everlasting. You are not the center of the world. You are not the center of the universe. It's actually a call that seeks to humble Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. And then we come to Daniel chapter 3. And what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't quite gotten the lesson right. Because Daniel chapter 3 opens with these words. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold and set it up on the plain of Dura. See, Nebuchadnezzar received that message, but he didn't quite like it. He said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a statue that's all of gold. And I'm going to set it up as a monument to the fact that I am the greatest, that my kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting, and it will be a sign to you and to all nations of my power. And I want you, and I want my court officials, and I want everyone who sees this statue and hears the the music for worship to bow down and to worship it. Hasn't quite gotten the lesson, right? And actually, what's really interesting is how the narrator tells this story, because if you take a look at Daniel chapter 3, and you were to read through this chapter, what you quickly notice is that in just 30 verses, it says nine times that Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. Nine times in 30 verses. So you kind of go through the story and and more literal translations, it's almost like it's pounding it into your head. It's just like, oh, and by the way, Nebuchadnezzar set up that image. Oh, and Nebuchadnezzar set up that image. And that, that image that they have to bow down to, Nebuchadnezzar made that. And he was the one who made it. Does everybody know? 
It just goes on and on. It's almost comical. And the question is, what is the narrator doing there? Well, the narrator is highlighting how ridiculous this is. Nebuchadnezzar has made something with his own hands and yet now insists that everybody else has to bow down and worship it as though it is divine. This is as ludicrous as me going home and taking a bunch of cardboard because I don't have gold and building a statue to myself in my front lawn and coating it with tinfoil because, again, I don't have gold and then insisting that everybody bow down to it. It's nuts. And we look at that, and again, we're like, see, this is what I'm talking about. The Bible is weird. Like, this is a goofy story. But I want you to think for a moment about what prompted Nebuchadnezzar to do this. He did it because he was fearful. He did it because he was looking for a pedestal upon which to stand. He was looking for something that he could build his life on in order to find stability and permanence. And so he crafts something that gives him that sense of control. And when we stop to think about that, we realize that this actually starts to hit a little closer to home. Because Nebuchadnezzar's problem is our problem too. In fact, I remember a couple years ago, I, I heard a talk by a friend of mine. His name is Bill Woolsey. And he opened his talk with these words. He says that America is a Hindu nation. He said, I actually think it's the second largest Hindu nation in the world after India. And here's what he meant by that. He said, when I went to India, I would travel around and I would see idols and pictures of God's everywhere. I mean, India is called a, a, a country that has a millions and millions of gods, uh, a land of gods. And so you could go into a bank and you might see a, an image of Ganesh, the elephant god, who, who stands for prosperity and success. Or if you're having a hard time in your love life, you might get an idol of Krishna, who among other things is the god of romance and love and sexuality. Or if you're struggling to be successful or to have power, you would, you would maybe pick up an idol of Shiva, Lord Shiva, and, and, and bow down and worship that. The point being, there's a, there's a God for everybody and for every situation. And you don't have to pick just one. You could pick whatever one you need in the moment. And Bill said, as I thought about that, and as I you know, came back to America and walked around, what I realized is we do the exact same thing. We just call our gods by different names. So instead of Ganesh, it's just prosperity. Instead of Lord Krishna, we worship beauty and sexual allure. Instead of Lord Shiva, we, wor we, worship we worship success. We call it climbing the corporate ladder. We bow down at the altars of science and, at, and of tolerance. We bow down to these things because we believe that these will give us a foundation upon which to stand. That having these things will make us someone will provide for our deepest needs. And this isn't just an insight that my friend Bill Woolsey has had. This is something that Christians have insisted down through the centuries, that there is this tendency within the human heart to set up idols, idols that we think are going to give us a sense of significance and purpose. 
In fact, Martin Luther in his large catechism put it this way. He says that a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. See, what Luther was saying and what St. Augustine before him was saying and what Scripture ultimately tells us is that worship is an inescapable reality of human existence. And that anything that we look to for our security, our significance, our, self of, our sense of self-worth, that is an idol that we are bowing down to. That is a God that we worship. And so it's no surprise that here in our American context, we have these things that we bow down to. But one of the other details that's worth noting in Daniel chapter 3 is that where there are idols, there are also furnaces. That Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to this, and if you don't, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. That's your punishment. And the truth is, is that all of these idols come with promises, but they also come with threats and with consequences. Think about it for just a moment. What if I'm worshiping at the idol of success, and I'm climbing the corporate ladder, and then something comes along where my boss asks me to do something unethical? Or ask me to do something that, that really doesn't seem like a good use of our company's resources or doesn't really honor our clients. And I say, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to bow to that idol of success anymore. I think what we're doing is wrong. I don't think that this is the best thing for our customers, for those who depend on us for our products. Well, you're fired, pun intended, okay? Thrown into the furnace, right? You don't keep climbing that corporate ladder. You don't get that offer for the next position, right? What if, I, what if I don't always bow down to the, at the altar of science? What if I dare to suggest that the universe wasn't just a mistake, but it was actually made by a beautiful and loving creator who designed everything with a purpose? That yes, there was a big bang, but there was also one who set off the big bang. There was, a one, there was someone who said, let there be light. Well, suddenly I'm looked at and I'm seen as kind of backward, I'm seen as anti-intellectual. What do you mean you think there's a God? Really? Where is he? I can't see him in my microscope. What if I don't bow to the altar of tolerance? What if I dare to say, you know, I do respect people who have different opinions than I do, but I believe at the end of the day that there is only one God and that the only way to him is through Jesus Christ. Well, suddenly I'm a bigot. I'm intolerant. I'm closed-minded. How dare you tell people what to think and what to believe? What if I don't bow at the altar of sex and sexuality and say, you know what? I'm saving myself for marriage. I believe that that's a gift that I should reserve for my spouse. Well, now I'm a prude. I'm sexually repressed. See, over and over again, there are promises that these idols give us, but there are also consequences. There are threats. There's a furnace there. And this isn't something that you, don't just take my word for this and don't just take the words of scripture for this. I mean, this is something that even non-Christians can recognize if you pause and you really think about it. In fact, one of my favorite quotes comes from a, a writer by the name of David Foster Wallace. He was a, a very open agnostic. I mean, he admitted that he was an agnostic. He didn't believe in, that there was a God. Well, he said, I'm not sure if there's a God, and I really don't care. But he once gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and this is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. 
There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. And he goes on and he says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's the furnace. And the problem with the furnace is that it doesn't just affect you and me. It has consequences for everybody else as well. And we see this most clearly in Nebuchadnezzar's own reaction. He's set up this idol, right, to his own greatness. And he's commanded that everyone bow down and worship it because he is the emperor. He is the ruler of Babylon, the conqueror of nations. And so he says, you will bow to this image until he gets the news that three people aren't. And suddenly, the great conqueror of nations, the ruler of the empire of Babylon, becomes a three-year-old with a temper tantrum. Right? Because it says that, I love this, Daniel chapter 3, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and his expression, and the expression of his face was changed. He throws a temper tantrum. He calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he's before him, and he says, Is this true? That you won't bow down and worship my idol? How dare you? You, when the music plays, you will get on your knees or I'll throw you in the furnace. He throws a temper tantrum because suddenly now the thing that he has built his life upon is threatened. And he realizes that for all of his so-called power, he can't make other people do what he wants. And so he loses it in a fit of rage and of anger. And I think that this is what happens to us when we've put something on the pedestal of our hearts, something that ultimately cannot satisfy. Because when that thing is suddenly threatened, we lose it. We either lose it in a fit of rage or we fall apart in fear. It's the furnace. Because we realize deep down that that idol and the promises that it was making can't ultimately satisfy. And so we cling to it and we try to get other people to recognize it. And we try to force them to recognize it as well and to affirm what we're doing and so on and so forth. We lose it in anger and fear. In fact, I would argue that most of the problems that we're dealing with in our world today are a result of worshiping the wrong things. When I turn on the TV and I look at the news, there is a lot of fear and anger in this world. And that's what happens when we do things like we worship our nationality or we worship our race. We worship our superiority. We worship the country that we are from. We worship our position, our standing. We worship our power and our status and our money. We all fall apart in anger and fear the moment those things are threatened because we know deep down inside that those are simply idols that we ourselves have set up. Is it any wonder that there's violence in places like Charlottesville and Spain? Every human being worships something. 
But our anger and our fear is simply the fruit of a heart gone wrong, of worship that has been oriented toward the wrong thing. And it's that fear and that anger that actually can tip us off that maybe we're worshiping something that ultimately doesn't satisfy. That there's something else on the pedestal of our hearts. For us, it's not necessarily a golden image like Nebuchadnezzar. But when we have those moments of fear and anger, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, so what is on my pedestal? If I think about my own life, I can name them pretty quickly when I start to think about the moments when I become angry or upset or afraid. That in my workplace, when I kind of lose my cool, it's usually because somebody has made me feel incompetent or dumb. Like I don't really know what I'm doing. And the name of that idol is, is that I'm in control. I'm successful. I know what I'm doing. Or with my kids, right? When they don't do something that I want them to do and I lose my cool, the name of that idol is, is I'm in charge, right? And the moment they say no or stand up to me, go to the furnace. I'm in your room. I'm in charge. Or what about my marriage? The things that usually set me off are when my wife calls me on something. When she says, you know, you forgot to do this or you, neg- or you neglected to do that. And I suddenly get upset that, that she would dare question me and dare question my, my intentions. I mean, because the idol of my heart in that arena is the idol of good husband. I'm a good husband. I always do things right. What do you mean? I, I missed something. I didn't do that. You see, those reactions of anger and of fear point to the fact that there's something on the pedestal of my heart that is in the way of God. And the moment it's threatened, I react with anger and with fear. That's the question we have to ask ourselves in those moments. What's on the pedestal of my heart? Why am I reacting with such anger and fear? It's because we know that those things ultimately don't satisfy. We're afraid of their consequences and of the furnace. So the question is, well, what's the way out? How do we live free? I think the answer comes when we look at the three young men who are on trial here. I love these guys. I love their reaction to Nebuchadnezzar. Because here you have the most powerful man of the world throwing a temper tantrum. And it would be easy for them to be afraid of him. I mean, this is the guy who invaded their country and who smashed their nation flat. And so he brings them before him and he's raging and stomping his feet and yelling and doing whatever he can to get them to bow the knee. And he says, if you don't bow down and worship this thing, into the fiery furnace you will go. And then, I love this answer. This is how they respond. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The more shrill and upset Nebuchadnezzar becomes, the more cool, calm, and collected these guys are. Right? They're like, we don't have to answer you in this. You want to know what God can deliver us from your hand? Our God, he can do that. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to the statue that you made. We're not going to bend the knee to that thing. And I have to wonder, 
What did these guys know that allowed them to stand in the face of this tyrant with such peace and with such calm, to not be shrill? Well, I think it's that they knew something about God. They knew something about who God was and what God had promised to do for them. And they knew that their role in that moment wasn't to respond to Nebuchadnezzar's being shrill with, by being shrill in their own right. I mean, notice that they didn't come to him disrespectfully and say, oh yeah, well you set up a statue and we all know that you built it and guess what? There's only one God and shame on you. That was not their reaction. They said, we don't need to answer you in this. Our God can deliver us. Simple as that. And even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your little toy. It's because they knew that God is a God who makes promises to his people. He is a God who walks with his people through fire. Because notice, notice what happens. It says that they are thrown into the furnace, that the furnace is heated hotter than it had ever been heated before, and they are tossed into the flames. Now, why is it, why is it that God doesn't just put out the fire? I mean, he could have. He could have gone and blown it out. He could have snapped his fingers and the heavens could have opened in rain. But instead, God allows them to be thrown in the furnace. And yet, when Nebuchadnezzar looks, he flips out. He says, didn't we, didn't we throw three people into the fire? And his advisor's like, yeah, we threw three people in the fire. He's like, then why are there four people in the fire? And they're like, I'm one, two, three, four. There's four people in the fire? He's like, yeah, and one of them looks like the, a son of the gods. And they look in and they see the three men are unharmed and there's a fourth with them. Commentators have debated who the identity of this being is. Is it an angel? I mean, later on, that's what Nebuchadnezzar thinks. He thinks maybe it's an angel. People are like, is it Jesus? Could he have been in there with him? I don't really know, but what I do know is I know that it is, that it is Emmanuel. It's God with us because, you see, one of the prophets in Daniel's day had said this. He says that when you, bringing a message from God to the people, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's from Isaiah 43, 2-3. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that God is a God who walks with his people even through fire. And they said, look, if he delivers us, he delivers us. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But he is a God who walks with us no matter what we face. And so we're not going to bow down and worship your toy. They knew that God is a God who walks with us through the flames. And the promise that God gave to them is the same promise that he gives to you and to me. God says that though you will face furnaces, though you will, you will face flames in this life, don't be afraid for I am with you. That I walk with my people through it. But furthermore, God goes even further than the promises he gave to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he says, there is, a there is a furnace, though, which you will never have to face. It's a furnace that I was willing to face on your behalf. It's a furnace that Jesus Christ himself faced when he came. That God came into this world, he became one of us, he walked with us, he lived with us, but ultimately he died for us and rose again so that we would never, ever have to face judgment. That we would never have to face the ultimate furnace. 
That is Jesus' promise to us. This is why we confess in the Apostles' Creed that he was died, buried, he descended into hell, and rose again. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who know that our identity, our security, and our significance are a gift given to us by God, we suddenly realize that all the other furnaces of the world no longer are that scary anymore. That our God is a God who walks through with us through every fire. And so that, yes, while we may be surrounded by flames, we will not be consumed. One of my favorite passages is actually a passage from the Psalms. It's Psalm 56.4. One of the translations translates it this way. It says, In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? For those of us who know Jesus, that is the right response when the world says, Bow to our idols. We can say no, because I know that my security, my significance, and my self-worth are gifts given to me by God through Jesus Christ. And your flames cannot harm me. It allows us to be courageous like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to live a life of true worship, a worship that actually sets us free. And there's one other detail in the story. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but one of the other details that I think is fascinating is this. The guards who, who would have bowed the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's statue are the ones who ended up ultimately perishing. That they go up to throw the men in the fire and they're the ones who die. And yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're thrown into the flames, it says that when they come out, there's no smell of smoke even on them. No sign that they've even been singed, except for one thing. Their bonds had been burned away. The ropes which bound them didn't exist any longer for them. See, the worship of God in Christ Jesus sets us free from those things that would put us in bondage. And we get to tell the world, a world filled with fearful and angry people, where a real foundation can be laid. That that's a part of what it means to bring redemptive influence to our society is to call out the ways in which our false worship just won't satisfy, but then to point people to the one who does satisfy, to God himself. In fact, this is something that even Nebuchadnezzar gets at the end of this story. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar knew in that moment by seeing the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that their God was different. That he was more powerful and provided greater security than any of his gods and any of his idols. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite get the story yet. He doesn't fully have it. This is not a confession of faith on his part. Because what, the other thing that he says, he says, So now everybody, instead of bowing to my statue, bow to their God or I'll kill you. So he doesn't get it yet, okay? This is not, Nebuchadnezzar has not arrived. But what he said is true. There is no other God who can rescue in this way. Now we're going to find out what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's story. We're going to be talking about it next week, so come back. Okay, that's my invitation to you. We're going to find out what actually happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But the point here is this. There's no other God who can save in this way. And that is the gift to the world which brings peace. 
It's a, it's a gift that brings peace and assurance in a society and in a culture full of fear and anger. That's what it means to live life in Babylon, is that we are people because our worship is right. It overflows in peace toward others. That we help people see where true security and peace is found. It's only, it's only with Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that that would bear fruit in our lives as we show people that there is no other God who can save in this way. And guess what? He loves you too. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, that we say, Amen.